What's up? What's up? What's up? Welcome to the 10th episode of Beyond Podcast. Uh, today, we got a doozy. Uh, I think this is probably one of my favorite episodes uh, so far. Got um, Chef Christopher Hatuft of uh, Lisvaka Restaurant in Bergen, Norway, uh, who just got their first Michelin star. We talk a little bit about that. Um, I think I found him. I was looking through a bunch of chefs and stuff that I that I follow and appreciate and stuff. And um, and Greg Backstrom, he had done a dinner uh, with him, and um, and I saw this fantastic picture of uh, Chef Hatuf with like fucking crusty punk, you know, mohawk and a fucking crusty punk jacket and shit. And I was like, fuck yeah, I gotta talk to this guy, uh, which we definitely get into. So. Chef Atif is uh, one of the smartest dudes I've ever talked to, one of the funniest dudes I've ever talked to. One of the things going into this episode I wanted to ask him about was why people who are like either on the punk side or metal side of, of society, the people who like throw their fists at fucking anything conventional, anything uh, with authority, how they always end up in high-end kitchens. I don't know what it is. He has some better theories than than my own, which we'll get into. But I still don't I still really don't know. I mean, a lot of the people that I've worked with have been uh punks, cross punks, metalheads, and they're some of the best people you work with, and they hold themselves to a really high standard. I don't quite know what that is, even though I'm one of those. I don't know what exactly draws me to it. Maybe it's it's certainly a sense of adrenaline and, uh, and aggression and speed that's why I like i don't really like music that's very mellow like people at work talk about well oh, you gotta like some country music no i hate it it's like so slow it's like honky tonk and that kind of shit now i want fucking like music's gonna go fucking hard fast like make me want to fucking you know punch a wall that kind of shit you know i want it to you know i want speed so maybe that has something to do with it i don't know Another thing that we talk about is is of going after things that are hard. I remember when I started um, the grill at at my current restaurant. It was the hardest station I've ever worked in my life. And I remember some some of my friends were asking me like, "Well, then why are you doing it?" And um, my answer is like, "Well, then I think you should do things that are hard and that you don't want to do." I think a lot of a lot of my life has been doing that. Like, I took a massive trip around the U.S. because I was anxious and I didn't want to do it. And um, Chef Hatuf says something in this that I think like distills it down to distills this da- that idea down to uh, one quote, which is uh, if the only reason to say no is because it's more comfortable to say no, then you should say yes. I think that's a really good uh, philosophy to live by. Because if you're just if you're just like I can't do that because it's really hard, well then you should do it because it's hard. And I felt like that was what happened when I worked. Um, grill at this place and it's so fucking hard it's like working two or three stations at once and uh and i've never worked at, at a place at that of this caliber this high-end caliber and so even that was stressful and the pace was stressful and making mistakes was stressful um but man you come out so much better holy shit man my confidence skyrocketed my capability as a cook just went through the fucking roof i think it, it just in the space of like a few months by doing that, by forcing myself to to go through that that anxiety and and pain, and uh, yeah, it was a hard time, but I'm much better for it, you know. 
I think a lot of this conversation is kind of talking about that. And we also talk a little bit about like the necessity for that type of difficult experience. I think it is really necessary. I think if you want to do anything well in your field, I think you have to go through an experience that is particularly difficult and puts you through the ringer a little bit, you know, put some burns on your skin, some fucking scars on your, on your hands, uh, whatever it is, you know, uh, I think, I think that that shit's really worthwhile. Um, well, before we get into the episode, uh, thanks again for sticking around. They've been a little inconsistent lately, but that's kind of has to do with, uh, yeah, with, uh, some life changes and things like that. And, um, and also, um, time and availability and stuff, but I'm planning to get, uh, a lot more going in, in the new year. The merch is still available. If anybody wants to, uh, snag a hat or a shirt or anything like that, that's peonmagazine.com slash store. Uh, yeah, check it out. Uh, Patreon's still up there. I appreciate all the support. I appreciate the listens, the shares, all that kind of shit. Uh, keep it real short today. Give, uh, Chef Hatuf to, uh, a follow. Check out his shit. He's got a restaurant down in Houston if you're in that area. Otherwise, you gotta go to Norway. So, do that too. Alright, enjoy this episode. It's one of my favorites. Enjoy. You're in Houston right now, right? Right. Did you already do the dinner with Paul or or is that coming up? Um, dinner with Paul. I'm not sure I'm doing a dinner with Paul this time around. Oh, okay. Oh, I, I just saw on your Instagram, you and uh, Paul Key, you were doing a dinner at uh, his restaurant. Oh, well, was that a while I have, ago? Me and Paul, we have a restaurant together here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. At the post, yeah. post hall, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so okay. he... Okay. Uh, normally we'll do a guest like uh, events when I'm here, but this time around I'm spending more time on uh, on the business side of things and trying to you know work our numbers. Oh, okay. But I'm I'm in the kitchen, but I, but we're not doing events though. So. Oh, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. How often do you come to Houston? Then? Um, maybe every second, third month. Oh, okay. I, I've been here. Uh, I've right, been here maybe let's see, and five, maybe five times so far this year. Wow. Okay. Hey, uh, and and uh, when did when did that restaurant open? I'm just now hearing about it. Really. Oh, no, it opened last year. About well, it opened when the post opened, so about a year ago, a bit more than a year ago. Okay. Uh, how's it going? Uh, it's going. I mean, it's going good in some ways, and then it's hard in other ways. Right? We're we're um, yeah. We have this kind of hybrid model of dine-in in a food hall, so yeah, that's a little bit hard to meet people's expectations of. You know, our price point and the product, Mary, coupled mm-hmm. with that type of environment. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, we, yeah. but we've gotten we've gotten some better than expected uh, press and accolades. So, you know. Oh, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. yeah. So we didn't really have a lot of expectations coming into it, right? Like we were just going to try to yeah. cook some nice food and, and, you know, explore Texas seafood and stuff like that. And then uh, – yeah, I don't know. Like the food writers and stuff liked it, so that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's exciting. Yeah, um, well, I appreciate you doing this. Um, so I pretty much just start at the beginning, really. Uh, Why did you get into cooking, and what was your first uh, food service job? Oh, those those two things are not related. Uh, no, <laughs> no. Like if I go no, way back, 
and uh, my first job was uh, selling ice cream out of a, okay. like a, one of those uh, uh, coolers that you strap over your shoulders. So I was maybe okay. 12, 12 uh, on the beach of Norway. No way. And, were you making the ice cream yourself or were no, you just no, buying no, the store? I, and then no. There was some guy that took advantage of a bunch of kids selling ice cream for like <laughs> nickels and dimes. And, but I got to walk in Norway. I don't know if this is politically correct or not, but in Norway or Europe, in Norway, people uh, uh, sunbathe topless, right? So I was mm-hmm. a, I was a twelve-year-old kid, <laughs> so I could, and as a twelve-year-old little boy, you're kind of harmless, right? So I could walk around the beach and sell ice cream to all these women. <laughs> Topless women. Yeah, it was a dream job. <laughs> that was my first foray into food service, right? <laughs> <laughs> then my next job was um, picking strawberries in the fields, and uh, and what we what we did, uh, we got paid per per uh, per box of strawberries. So what we would do would just fill up the bottom of the stra- the box with rocks and gravel, <laughs> and you know, and then put some ripe strawberries on top. My third job was at a hamburger shop. So there was a small like, kiosk type hamburger shop. So uh-huh. I would, uh, I was maybe 14, 15 mm-hmm. flipping hamburgers. Okay. So that was your first like cooking job. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I'd call it cooking because <laughs> with the cook, you need to know what's going on. Right. I, I was just yeah. told to put that frozen patty on that griddle and so oh, the okay. time <laughs> drop the fries in the free in the fryer and and then uh after that i didn't yeah. really cook until i didn't do you know i worked some bars and some stuff like that but then uh when i turned around 20 21 i started i i, I got a job uh right writing uh, uh recipes for okay. our local paper so in the weekend edition uh, they gave me a double spread and I would write uh, a couple of recipes and some stories related to the recipes and, you know. Oh, dang. How did you get that job? How did you line that, that up? That's a, it all sounds so weird, but so basically a friend, like I wasn't really doing anything constructive with my life at the time. And a friend of mine had this, this offsite catering gig where he would, mm-hmm. uh, take on all kinds of crazy events and then uh and he had no experience cooking but he was a very knowledgeable foodie right uh-huh. so sometimes he'd need help and he'd ask me to come help him out just because i liked cooking mm-hmm. or i don't know i thought it was it was always a party right so you could you know drink beer and yeah grill some yeah. kebab or something like that so i would help him out and then i had one a and then he, because he was this guy who was known around town, like he knew everybody. The newspaper asked him to take over that uh, column, but he had very okay. severe ADHD and he couldn't really concentrate and stuff like that. So he, he asked me if I want, like he suggested to them that I do it mm-hmm. solely based on that. I liked helping him out cooking every once in a while. And that I, I, I'd won a, 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 a writing competition when I was 15, oh, 16. That's, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, but it was just like I don't know, like a five hundred word small story about. Well, it was about about a soup, but it was a compare like a long story. I got it was a it was my delinquent days. Anyway, the the <laughs> so, yeah, the point is that the newspaper gave me this uh, article. They gave me this weekly column, mm-hmm. 
And uh, I would bullshit my way through the column every week because I didn't know what I was talking about. So I would, yeah, I would. This was two thousand and one or something, right? So it was kind of pre-internet, uh, not pre-internet. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, yeah, and, yeah. Like it wasn't as big. The internet wasn't as prevalent. Yeah. Well, put it this way: you were using Alta Vista, not Google, at that time. Oh. <laughs> so damn. Um, yeah. Anyway, I did that for a couple of years, and then. Um, as long as you write something in a paper, you're an expert. So people with less, less <laughs> you, they, uh, they treat you like an expert, right? So they, I got approached by somebody that wanted to open a bar that also served food and they asked me if I wanted to be the chef. And I said, sure, no problem. <laughs> so you just went straight to, straight to the top. Did you have any like kitchen experience besides just flipping Zero. frozen patty? Zero. Wow. Yeah. But I thought, how difficult is that? You write a menu, you know, you cook some stuff every day. Wait, where were you getting these recipes from? Were you just making them up, just bullshitting the recipes? Or did you actually like cook uh, as no, a the trick, kid? The trick to writing recipes is you Google a recipe and you change out a couple of yeah. ingredients. Because right? it's not a, <laughs> you know, you'll never find a recipe that's not been written before. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. Anyway, so I so I, I started to open this restaurant with them or bar or restaurant. And then they very quickly saw what was going on and pulled out. And me and my buddy was left to own and manage it and at the same time we're, we're also trying to go hard as you know crusty punk rock kids yeah so we would, we would have um you know these you know like the home style detroit punk rock shows like on the floor of your apartment you know? oh yeah 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 house shows and stuff yeah, yeah so we would have that type of punk rock shows in the in the dining in the bar room. oh wow yeah yeah uh, and it it failed needless to say it failed and uh were you, were you yeah. playing any, was it friends playing those shows or was it, did you guys actually get like some big acts coming through? Nah, it was, it was a bit of, not big acts, but it was, uh, it was mainly friends and local bands and yeah, some of our friends had a booking agencies so that would have you know, bands that were traveling through, but, uh, but anyway, so they, cl- they closed and after that I was kind of, uh, lost in the desert for a couple of years and then I, I kind of the lifestyle we had been living uh, starting to kind of get real. So I, I, I uh, jumped ship a bit and, and started, uh, you know, I started an apprentice, apprenticeship program. So I didn't go to cooking school, but I just started working in restaurants. And at the end of that, there was an exam. And then after that, you know, that's how I got my uh, degree. But I wasn't done. I didn't get my degree until I was like 27 or something, I think. Oh, so so this that whole time you were in that. How long did that did that bar um, gig last? Two, three years, I think. Oh wow, you guys you guys made it a while then, actually. Well, I don't know if the way you made it the the, the, the way you made it sound. We didn't make it a single day, but we were open for two two years. I think. <laughs> yeah, that's a better way to put it, I guess. Do you remember what sort of food you were cooking? Where you did you even like? Uh, I remember the first guess, menu we had like. Um, uh, Different types of like we went classic with mussels and um, uh, different types of codfish, and it was like a nice menu. You know, I'm sure uh, if I remember that menu today, it would probably look like look like a menu. You know, of course, of course yeah. it would look like it was written by a toddler, but it was still like <laughs> it, it still kind of had the major food groups on it. And then I remember our first service; there was tables waiting for two hours on their food, and jeez. Uh, that feeling of being in the weeds uh-huh. at the time was completely new to me. Yeah. And if you've been in the weeds, that is a fairly horrible, crushing oh, yeah. feeling, right? 
Oh, it's but at least worse. now, at least now we expect it. We know what we're exactly. Like you just, yeah, you need when you get that prickly sensation in the back of the <laughs> your neck, like you don't panic because yeah. you know what that is, right? Yeah, back yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Holy shit, what is this? You know, like <laughs> full full dining room. That means what? Like, oh shit, this table is pissed off. Why the hell are they yeah. pissed off? They gotta relax, man. I'm, I'm working on their food. I know it's been a while, but shit. You know, you don't yeah, see me it's, working. It's, it's yeah. ready when it's ready, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Shit. All this irrational oh, behavior from the guests, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, oh, man. No, so that is, and then after, so after a while, we we did what every failing restaurant does. We pivoted to burgers. Yeah, right. And, you <laughs> and know, that, we did some nice burgers, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It was, it, it wasn't, it's not an advisable route to go. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Um, wait, so did you kind of like, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, like clean, clean up your act when you were, when you it ended up doing that apprenticeship or were you still pretty like yeah. crusty and, and okay? No. Yeah. Like, you know, we came from this, uh, not the, we came from the old branch of European punk rock. You know what I mean? Like the leather jacket studs and yeah. drugs. And, uh, yeah. um, yeah, it, it got, it got a bit too real, you know, not like any, not anything like, not like uh requiem for a dream type of real, but it was just yeah. like, you, you, you see the signs and you're like, all right, like this yeah, you is see where it's going a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where it wasn't. Your, fun. It wasn't fun. It was so. It was too much anger. You know, like it was. Oh yeah. It was all fun, and then after a while, every, people get feel alienated and angry, and you know. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Um. Th- where was that apprenticeship at? Did you? Uh, what was it? So what I did is in Norway, you either go to well, normally you go to school for two years, and then you apprentice for two years, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't go to school, you can apprentice for the entire four years. But then, whatever whatever experience you have leading up to that, get, you can it gets you to let lets you cut down on the the time that you apprentice. Okay. So you have to document your experience. So for my 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 fast food uh, Kia, you know, hamburger shop when I was fifteen, that was a traditional American cuisine. Right, <laughs> my experience in traditional American cuisine and that gave me you yeah. know half a year off or you know whatever. So I did two and a half years. I ended up getting two and a half years of apprenticeship, and I, I split that between uh, three different restaurants because I was uh, you know a mix of restless and arrogant. Like I thought, I thought I knew what I was doing, and that that I, I didn't have that much to learn from one place, and I wanted to spread it out, which mm-hmm. I guess worked out kind of, but. But I wouldn't say uh, again. Like I would, I would suggest people find one place and stay for a yeah, longer yeah. period in the beginning than, than jump around in the beginning. But it was just it was local restaurants back home in, in my hometown of Bergen in Norway. You know, find yeah, that. yeah. Did any of them like uh, look at uh, at at your your resume as a head chef and and sort of <laughs> ask yeah, you about that, that or did you? You pay him as a kumi, but he has head chef experience. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny i haven't thought of that as <laughs> that in uh in, in america would be like oh shit why are you going for this line cook job when you when you were a head chef but yeah um, i don't know yeah. you see some weird resumes though oh yeah of course yeah we see some weird ones at, at, at my job too um but um after your apprenticeship where did you end up going uh going yeah so that, that was it like i when i print this was 
So let's say the first year of my apprenticeship, I was working at a sustainable restaurant, and this was 2006. So okay, this was right when maybe Noma was just getting started. It didn't have international fame yet. You know, the whole mm-hmm. farm to table, none of that stuff was really it, – it hadn't landed yet, you know. Like when, yeah. when oh, yeah. Ed Barber got his review in the New York Times, it was still groundbreaking stuff, right? So oh, imagine yeah. how it was in a tiny, tiny city in in, uh, in Norway. So I worked with this amazing lady who was very much pioneering uh, locavorism in my region. Mm-hmm. So that was nice, but it was also a small, like lunch restaurant that did omelets and this kind of stuff. I wanted to do fine dining, so I, I ended up uh, my last year at the like old school fine dining restaurant of my hometown, and then all the while doing that. I can think. I think a thing that uh, set me a little bit apart from the kids that I was apprenticing with and working with was that, like, I knew that I was 25, 26. Like, I, I knew that I was competing for jobs with these kids that, just by sheer age, would have ten years on, or like five, five, six years on me, right? Yeah. For the same salary. So you look around the kitchen. There's not a single person older than like 28. So. Yeah. I figured if I'm going to do this, I'm going to have to uh, be smart. So luckily I always loved like reading and studying, like trying to, f- like I, I was a horrible student. Like I dropped out of school early, but I, but I always liked, like I'm immersing myself in uh, like geeking out over stuff. So yeah, I'm the same um, way. Yeah. Right. So um, at, at that time, like in 2006, seven, eight, there was a lot of these uh, internet like messaging boards and forums Mm-hmm. And it, it was still novel and it wasn't – people hadn't gotten internet smart, like social media smart. And it wasn't a bunch of uh, journalists and stuff like that. So people people would discuss very openly and freely. And and uh, it was just at the time where you got nice digital SLR cameras. Okay. So there would be – like there was a website called eGullet that I would go on. From okay. Norway, where all these top chefs, especially in the U.S., were, they, they were using this website to connect. And, and um, at that time, they would uh, trade ideas for, like, they would be exploring, like, molecular gastronomy type of stuff, right? Oh, that's really so, cool. Okay. Yeah, because it was also for uh, for um, uh, amateur cooks. And, you know, who, anyone could log into these uh, these forums and discuss. So there would be, like, a, a chef talking about sous vide and how the different temperatures affects the proteins in the meat. And then maybe a mm-hmm. doctor, oh, or wow. a, physicist, a, a scientist or something that understood the actual science, they would write, you know, they would, they would discuss, they would make these charts over like what's called a collagen denaturing, denaturing collagen or whatever time mm-hmm. and temperature kind of thing. And it was oh, like okay. geeking out on that, but, but it wasn't, and it wasn't yeah. just like, cooks like me it was like grant Atkins and these you know very high level cooks writing on this uh this forum so i would i was reading that that's incredible yeah it was pretty cool it was very democratic in in a sense right Mm -hmm. and uh i was uh reading that and this was at the same time as zelenia had just opened and they had these long threads of uh, like you could go back and you could you could uh, see the whole process of them opening and doing their r&d dinners at nick conus's place so uh, I just wrote him an email. Like I fished his email out of his account and, and uh, yeah. emailed him and asked for a, a, an internship. Mm-hmm. And he accepted. So I moved, I went straight from my my rest, the restaurant I was at back in Norway straight to Chicago and 
came into that uh that environment there in 2007. Wow. Yeah, was and that, that was was that like a huge like jump for you cuz like Alinea, uh, I don't know what it was like back then but I can imagine it was pretty um tight, very very controlled, very I mean, like a Michelin star kitchen. Yeah. So was that was that a huge jump for you? Yeah, that was that was uh, definitely a life-changing experience. Like yeah. Uh, in hindsight, it's easier to see, you know, what some of these experiences, um, what, you know, the situations that kind of set the path towards where, where you're at, like that, walking into that kitchen and seeing that completely, like that shook my world. Like I had never seen anything like that. It wasn't like, uh, like I, I got, I got a, I had like suspended gel senses for not showing up to military service and stuff like that. Right. So like I, Oh damn. You know, as a punk, as a punk rock kid, like I had a total lack of respect for authority, and yeah, and so just the idea of that stuff really didn't didn't sit well with me. But walking into a kitchen like that, where it's so structured and disciplined and, and hierarchical, mm-hmm. like for some reason, like that was all right. You know what I mean? Like, and that completely, yeah. um, like it just made total sense, and it was so. There's such an energy that came off all these kids they're running like running around the kitchen with purpose working you know super fast and clean and with such pride and and oh, yeah. you know like you have two 19 year old kids working shoulder shoulder to shoulder trying to keep uh, like keep each other motivated and and like nitpicking on quality and stuff and it's just like it was just completely foreign to me and after that it gave me a, a you know some some well didn't set some standards in me because it's taking me quite a while to adopt you know just even some of it but at least it showed me what it can be right yeah yeah and, that, uh, high, that high bar yeah I've, I've, yeah I've I've thought a lot about that late like after being there like what why that is because I've seen the same type of like there's a, there's a type of kinship you feel with the people in the kitchen and I remember at per se we were, we were standing on like we were online for service one night and one of the sous chefs or something did a did like a head count on who was old punk rock kids and it was like I don't know like <laughs> five out of seven online yeah had this punk rock background right. Yeah, and it doesn't make sense because no, it's almost the opposite. But there might there's probably something about the adrenaline and the feeling oh, yeah. of uh, maybe the feeling of being uh, on the side of normal society a bit. You know, like yeah, like it's kind of like a weird like cult kind of same thing. Being a musician, right? Like you live your life yeah. on the road and and you like you play you. You play, you work Fridays and Saturday nights when everybody's off. Like, so when everybody else is having fun, that's when you work. And then when everybody's at work, that's when you relax, right? So you never really, you always live like parallel to normal life. And yeah, I guess, uh, I guess, uh, and it's also, I remember as, as a kid, it was always a competition of being the most extreme, like being the most fucked up (laughs) or being, uh, yeah. went to these festivals and parties and shows or whatever. It wasn't about who could, you know, you didn't get points for acting normal. You got points for being the craziest, right? Craziest one. Yeah. Yeah. And the same in the kitchen, you get points for not being the craziest, but, but applying like, uh, like being the best, you know, like in a, in a day daily competition and being a hardcore and yeah. You know, it's not just about sharpening your knives. It's about having them the sharpest all the time and never letting your standards slip. And these type, I don't know. It was just, uh, yeah. there's something that reverberates around, 
between the yeah. two that I, I don't, I haven't, I don't, I'm not going to try to articulate it. I and mean, it's not that important. You know what I mean? But it's just, it's just yeah. funny. It's funny that it's it, very it, interesting. Yeah. That, that a lot of punk and, uh, and metal people end up in kitchens and especially yeah, in high end kitchens. Interesting though, because yeah, my friends from London that worked at these Gordon Ramsay kitchens and stuff like they're, you know, ordinary kids kind of, you know, like, or oh, really? now, but you know, I don't know this. And in Norway, it's not anything like that. It's also, more cookie cutter type of, you know, kids coming up through high school. But in the U.S., for some reason, there's more of that counterculture in the kitchens. Yeah. That's, That's my very unscientific analysis. Of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure why either. Um, Cause I, I definitely see both, both types of people. Um, but I see a lot more people that are kind of hardcore in some in some way and extreme and they take and I, they like the extremes that kitchens have you know it's a it's a very yeah. interesting um juxtaposition you know because it's like you really shouldn't be in that environment if you're anti-authoritarian but somehow it works i don't know yeah but then it's also meritocracy right it's not a oh a yeah for the sake of authority like if you don't know what you're talking about you can't you can't prove it but then you get you know you get cut down very quickly yes yeah that's true that's very well, true. You know, if the police comes up to you and start flaunting their authority, and they haven't proven anything except you know a badge <laughs> of suit, you know, so yeah. it's not the same. Yeah. It's not really the same. Like it's not a questionable authority. It's like, that's a good point. You got to a point where you're proving yourself. That's why you have that authority. You see, that's the worst type of kitchen manager or any manager or somebody that that is given the authority, but they can't. Uh, there's no merit behind it. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Yeah. So did you did you uh, enjoy that experience, Alinea? I've heard I've heard I loved it. various um, things. I've heard it's a very hard kitchen. Um, yeah, to work in. it was hard, but I mean, yeah, I loved it. I, I completely, I I I one hundred percent loved loved it, and it changed my life. And I wouldn't be where I'm at today if I hadn't done it. And I was only there yeah. for a couple of months, you know. Like I didn't, I didn't. Oh really? Time. Okay. But the hard part, of it, like all these, the kitchens that I learned the most have all been stupid hard, and I don't. Uh, I don't know. Did you do that by design or did it just kind of happen? That they're hard? No, that yeah, I, like did, did you choose the hardest kitchens you could find or did it just yeah, happen? Because well, some, some, sometimes I did. Like sometimes I've, like when I worked at, when I went to Per Se, I was, I had a, a couple of different options of place to go. And I was like, li it was literally a split second, not decision, but I was, the chef, I, I did a, I did a trail shift there, and the sh at the end of the night, the, the, <laughs> the chef actually thought I was there just to hang out. So when I asked him, "So what's the next steps for getting a position here?" It, it was confused. Yeah. It's like, "What? You're here for a job?" And like when he asked that question, the thought that ran through my head was, "If I answer yes now, then you know that's me setting myself up for this type of experience. If I say no, that's yeah. the easy way out." Yeah, I thought, well. The most difficult thing I can do for my the most the hardest thing I can do in my life is to say yes and try to get this position here. Yeah, and there's no reason not to do it. It's just a coward decision not to do it. You know. Yeah. So yeah. I said yes, and I got the job, and it's like 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 that 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 mentality has followed me a bit. Like if if the only reason to say no is because it's more comfortable to say no you know, should say yes, you know? So, but yeah, 
I don't know. I don't, it's hard. This whole question about, you know, is it necessary that it's so hard, you know, to be in that type of learning experience? And I, I guess it's individual. Like for me, it was like, I didn't have, I still yeah. struggle with discipline, right? Like self-motivation and, and uh, yeah. follow through on stuff. Same here. If I hadn't put, if they hadn't put me to the fire, then like, I wouldn't. I, I would never. I would never be able to better myself. If it was all, if it was all on my own time and my own accord. Like I had, I had to be yeah. put in a situation in, a, in an environment where every, literally everybody around me is better than me, and the expectations are sky high. You know, they're they're oh, yeah. so much higher than what I what I can naturally provide. Um, yeah, I'm the, I'm the same way. Like I, I feel like um, if you put yourself in that really difficult situation, you're 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 you know that you're going to force yourself to to get better. Mm. Whereas but if then, it, if that's not behind you, then you're not going to really do it. Right. And then, and then, but then there is maybe an expectations an expectation now that that ex, you should be able to get that experience in a in a more uh, comfortable environment where the expectation, yeah. the like management's expectations of, and way of expressing their expectations is is uh, you know I'm not saying that there's not abusive environments, but there's a difference in telling somebody what you're doing right now is not good enough. Yeah. And you continue on this path. I can no longer employ you. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a yeah. subjective statement. Right. Yeah. And of course you shouldn't start with that. You should start with, I'm seeing, I can see that you're struggling with this task. Let me, you know, let me help you. Let me know what, you know, how, how can I be of assistance to you so that you can succeed in, you know, your job. But at some point, if you're, if you're not scoring any goals, you get put off the team, right? Yeah. And in sports, we accept it, you know? Yeah. We celebrate true. it. We celebrate it, you know? Like, it's, you know, those are the heroes. And if you didn't make the team, nobody cares. But in the kitchen, uh, I think lately it's become a little bit, um, I don't know. I feel like it's too easy to, to vill villainize the type, that type of management of, that of, of a place like Alinea. Yeah. without seeing the merits of it as well. Like not, not saying that you shouldn't treat people right, but, and, and that said, like, I didn't see anything at Alinea that wasn't right. You know, like there was, there were, there was people were hardcore and whatever, but I mean, and I was definitely the odd one out there, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. I, I, I love it. I'll just put it that way, you know? Yeah. 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 I think there's people that thrive in that environment and some people that don't, um, and I feel like uh, people tend to forget that, that, that it, even if there is like a chef that's being vilified for some sort of, uh, um, for the way that they run their kitchen, there's a bunch of people still in that kitchen who really appreciate it and really uh, thrive in that environment. So that often gets overlooked, I think. You yeah. know, there are people like you and, and myself who want to be in that environment and want to be pushed and want to be, make themselves better, you know? Yeah. And, and that's a, like Grant, Grant, uh, Chef Atkins, he didn't, he was nothing but a gentleman the entire time I saw him there. And then, and then, uh, so I don't, I don't, uh, I don't necessarily put that restaurant in that category, but, mm -hmm. but, uh, I mean, I guess you can't really say that, say that without also saying that the way the lack of management experience that young managers in these high stress environments have, mm -hmm. that has led to some really horrible results though, you know, like that's been yeah. some. We the whole conversation the last couple of years have mainly been around uh, sexual abuse and and 
you know, the, the Me Too conversation, but mm-hmm. I, f- I feel like uh, something that's not really been talked about as much is abusive behavior and, and the the mental torture that some some of these managers have put kids through. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. And that's, that's different. That's true. different from high expectations, though. You know, like I feel like yeah, some of the best managers I've had in these high-stress environments, they've they've been uncompromising on their expectations to you, but and it's been rough, you know, like you feel like you're letting everybody down, you're letting yourself down, but they've also offered help to the extent of, mm-hmm. the, to the extent that that can be expected, you know, at some point they, you can't expect them to give you more help because you're not just performing the task that you're given, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. They all often true. gets lumped in the same bag. Yeah, that's that because, is true. Because of the because of the feeling the 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 cook or the young person or whatever is left with it, the feeling is the same. Like if I scream at you from you know at like an animal mm-hmm. in a completely unreasonable way, or if I tell you I'm sorry, but I'll have I have to let you go because you just can't cook at the level you're expected to. Like the the feeling you're left with is the same, right? Like it's very, yeah. not, very not a big difference in the, the end result of those two lines of communication. Yeah. And it's often that person, whatever that, that person who dictates the com- the conversation, right? Yeah. And then you don't really have a microphone for the person who said, well, I gave this kid all these chances and blah, 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 you know? And it, it, yeah, it's in Norway, <laughs> that's true. They don't social, explain themselves. Right. And play, in Norway, in this social democracy that we have, where there's an expectation that there's room for everyone. Yeah. Right? And it permeates culture and government and everything. It's very hard for mm-hmm. people to understand that. Like my fine dining restaurant back home, we get international press, right? So we get, we, we are compared with businesses internationally, the same as a, 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 a sports team in Europe, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so yeah, for sure. The, the the rules are similar to international sports. Yeah, and and there's just not room for everybody, you know, on a team. True. Yeah, I mean, it's like you said, it's a meritocracy, and people forget that ab- about kitchens. You know, yes. that if you really if you can't do the job, well, then you just you're not making the team, really. And sometimes yeah. it's harsh, and sometimes it, it 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 hurts a lot of feelings, but it is what it is, really. Yeah. So, anyway, that was my story at Lina. Um, did you? I loved it. <laughs> yeah. Did you feel the same way at Per Se? Was that was that where you went next? Per Se. Well, after Alinea, I hurt my foot. I, when I was at Alinea, I hurt my foot, so I had to go back to Norway, and I kind of put oh, me okay. out of out of play for a little while. And okay. when I was there, I helped open a restaurant, and then uh, I moved to Paris after that. And I spent oh, wow. a year in Paris. And, cooking uh, or just traveling? Yeah, cooking because uh, the Norwegian embassies they normally have a they'll, they'll no, normally employ a young Norwegian cook to cook at the different to live in and cook at the different embassies. So it's a real cushy job where that's really you, cool. Yeah, you're given an apartment and you know an okay salary, uh, and you don't really work that much. But for me, me and my wife at the time, it was uh, it was an uh, an opportunity to live. You know, live in Paris, drink wine, eat nice food, you know, learn yeah. how to be a guest at a restaurant. And uh, I did that for a year, got fat. And then my friend, <laughs> uh, yeah, one of my friends that I made at, at Linea, Greg Backstrom, who has uh, Olmsted in Brooklyn, he was offered the head chef job at uh, Blue Hill of Stone Barns. Oh, and wow. the, yeah, the coincidence awesome. is that 
at the time I was reading, uh, I think right before he, he sent me that email and told me about the offer, I read a tweet or something from Grant Atkins of him having the best, having had the best ricotta in the world at this place, Blue Hill at Stonebarns. Yeah. So I started reading about it. And then out of the blue, my, my buddy emails me and he says, oh, I've been, I've been offered the head chef job at this place. What do you think? And I said, shit, take that job and I'll move over yeah. there and work with you. All right? Yeah. So we did that. And we That's spent, incredible. Yeah. So I spent the year there and then I, I uh, had like half a year after that where I was bouncing around a little bit, writing a cookbook for Farmer's Market back home. And then I worked at Per Se for a year and then moved back to Norway. What was Blue Hill like? I know a little bit about it, but was he working with farmers at that point, developing yeah, so, the, the vegetables or was it still just a restaurant? No. So Blue Hill in Manhattan, that, you know, that's just a restaurant in uh, down by what it's in Washington Square or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the one at, at Stone Barnes is up by the Rockefeller uh, State okay. Park Reserve. So that's a, it was a, a large farm that mm-hmm. uh, I think uh, like Peggy Rockefeller owned or something. And then they donated it to this foundation and they set up an educational program and uh, for the different schools around that area, as well as a lot of uh, collaborative agriculture with uh what is it, Cornell University and, or, you know, some of these universities. And on the property, yeah. they built this beautiful restaurant that's Blue Hill. And they commissioned yeah. Dan okay. Barber. So the property is Stone Barns. And then they commissioned Dan Barber to, to bring his Blue Hill concept to Stone Barns. Okay. It must be insane working that close to a farm. Yeah, that was mind blowing, man. Like, that was, like, it wasn't as disciplined as Alinea. And it was a lot, it felt a lot bigger. They did a lot of big events and stuff like that. But okay. the closest to nature and Dan's uh, vision on bringing the farm into the dining room. Yeah. Uh, like it really taught me a lot on, on how to look at, you know, sustainability, product, interaction with the guests, you know, all, it was, it was very, uh, in the way a, a place that serves a, an organic carrot can be avant-garde it was very 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 uh it was it's been pushing the boundaries so that again to me also was like a very defining uh, you know time of my career i guess you can call it yeah yeah yeah. so you went to per se after blue hill you said yeah yeah were you were you a cook there as well or did you were you some sort of a sue or no 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 I thought that's the thing. Like after after Blue Hill, like I've always had a grandiose ideas of myself, right? So after Blue <laughs> after year at Blue Hill, like going to Blue Hill, I thought I was going to be a sous chef, and I come up there and they put me online. And first of all, I don't I don't understand a word that that people are saying to me, right? Like the whole terminology in American kitchen is so different than you know, of course, Norway, but that the way of like I had. All the restaurants back home in Norway are very small. A yeah. cook will do like a, they're normally like three, four cooks at, at work at a time, and and there won't be wow. a pastry chef or you know dishwasher or stuff like that. So you just do everything, right? Yeah, and, and you have your own tickets, and you know it's not as a brigade. It's not like the brigades here in the U.S. or France or these places. So uh-huh. being put, I was put on entremet station. And there was an expo on our line. So there was, what was it? There was a, uh, 
the head chef and two, three expos on the different lines. So like a garbage, there was a garbage expo, a, a, a fish and entremet expo and a meat expo, right? Together with the head chef who's wow. more outward facing towards it, I guess. Then the, uh, the sous chef in charge of my line uh, was a, a Mexican guy with a very broad accent. And okay. like, I speak English because my mom is American. And I grew up speaking English, but I've never really, I never lived in the U.S. So like, I don't know, like sometimes my, I guess my English seems better than it is. Right. But then uh, <laughs> well, this guy was calling out orders and I couldn't for the life of me understand what he was saying. Oh God. Yeah. And uh, on top of that, he was using these the term, terminology, like uh, for those who are not familiar with how things are expedited in the kitchen, you say, you're out on pick up, fire, uh, out before, get ready. You know, there's all these different yeah. ways of communicating uh, timing. Yeah. And you didn't understand any of those terms? And on top of that, I, I wasn't you used to working in that type of environment. So I would say, uh, yeah. excuse me, chef, uh, what exactly does uh, out on mean? And this is, this is when it's busy right yeah. So yeah the poor guy was so frustrated this stupid norwegian guy is like you don't really <laughs> i'm telling you so wait a minute what's the difference of fire and get ready oh, oh like i didn't have any sense of urgency or anything oh shit on, man on top of it's all on top of that i just hadn't cooked and that those vol like i didn't really know how to cook like i would know you give me a piece of meat and i, I would cook i would cook it nicely but give me t- 10 pieces of meat and then give me 10 minutes on this temp. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even know where to start. Start. So, yeah. so it was just so much technique that was expected of me. And I, I, I failed horribly. And then at the same time, oh, man. I would walk around the kitchen and be like, yeah, I'm going to be Greg, Greg, my buddy. I'm, I'm going to be a sous chef. And, then people, and, <laughs> and I think Dan at some point just was like, yeah, this isn't working out. And I, I went, fuck, oh, damn. I'm going to get fired. Like, that is so embarrassing. You know, I'm this rock star and I'm going to get fired. That's so unfair. <laughs> and and uh, he Shit. kept me on. So he didn't fire me, but he kept me on. Uh-huh. But I didn't get a sous chef position. And But I, me and me and my our friends, Sonny and Greg, like we, we kind of ran the kitchen. Like, like uh-huh. I helped Expo and run the meat program and stuff like that. But it was a very, very, very steep learning curve. I went, I lost. Wow. 30 pounds like in a month or two and uh, it was very humbling but not humbling enough because after that <laughs> i started i started looking for jobs at other places and uh because of my experience there where i basically was a sous chef but i wasn't right yeah i was expecting i, I remember i trailed at emp and it was like they offered me a job at the nomad that they were opening i was like yeah but it's gonna it's gonna be a sous chef position they're like no it's like, yeah, I don't know. So when I went to Per Se, I figured, well, I guess at Per Se, it's okay to be a, a line cook. You know, like, yeah. I don't have to be a sous chef at Per Se. And so, yeah. But yeah, I uh, I was kind of an asshole, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you at this point? Oh, I was old, man. I remember <laughs> at Per Se, I had some, I bought some nice red sneakers and then. One of the other line cooks in the locker room, he looks at me and he goes, ah, they're very youthful. <laughs> like, fuck you, man. I'm 30. <laughs> but I was this weird old guy at Per Se at 30. Was there a lot a lot of young people, like 20-somethings in, in, in the kitchen yeah, at Per Se? Yeah, my sous chef was 24. 
you know, Holy shit, man. Before. Yeah, Danny Calvert, he just got a second star in Tokyo now. He's an absolute beast of a cook. Wow. Jeez. Yeah. Holy shit, man. Uh, I'm in the same boat. I yeah, was always that's up. why I moved back to Norway as well. Right. You know, like yeah. I, I moved back to Norway because at 32, I was 32 then when I left per se because I was a line cook. I've been there a year. There was not a single sous chef that had been there less than three years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that would that would put me at like 34, 35. And then, you know, you put in a couple extra years, all, all of a sudden, boom, you're 40 years old, and then you have to start your own thing. And, uh, yeah. and uh, Norway is a is such a – everything in Norway is just easy. So I knew that I, in Norway back home – like I was also very naive about that because I didn't really know exactly what it entailed. But I I did kind of feel like I knew that in Norway I could open my own restaurant fairly easy. While in the okay. U.S., you can just, in New York, you can forget about it, right? You need oh, yeah. investors and you know all that stuff. Yeah. So I figured I'm going to move back to Norway. I knew like I was cynical enough knowing that if I move back to Norway with having these restaurants under my belt, it's the type of experience nobody else has back home. And, and you know, it doesn't matter if you're there one or three years kind of in the public perception of it of course yeah you know so i knew i kind of had that in the bag already but a thing i didn't really like i my only regret i don't regret in that sense but the only thing i feel like was a mistake i should have spent more time in per se like i like how long did you spend there a year just a year yeah right so you know i have some really i made some really dear friends uh like shit i got an like article i got articles the, the amount of um, attention I've gotten for my my short time at per se is uh, not uh, indicative with the job that I did there or you know the time that I spent yeah. you know yeah yeah but again it's like who gives a shit you know it's it's like like I, I'm not I'm not self conscious about that if somebody wants to write write in the article that I work these places no problem man like yeah well I didn't I know I didn't put the time required to really own it but. Like it's just us between us that judge ourselves like that. It's not, yeah, you know, the true. journalist and the public, they don't give a shit. You know, they don't know the difference yeah. in one of three years and one of these places. So yeah, like they don't know the difference in three and seven years. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they yeah, don't know when true. that, when it turns embarrassing that you only work, even though you worked at one place, like, you know, cooks start looking down at you. If you worked at a three Michelin star your entire life, you know, it's like, <laughs> what, you didn't move to another one. You know, like it's all bullshit. Yeah, so, yeah for so, sure. I know, and I know, I'm confident enough now that I know that the time, like the t- literal ten years I've spent in my own restaurant, is, is that's what really matters. It's what what have I been able to do with my own stuff, you know? Yeah. So did you go straight back to Norway and and open your restaurant there? Yeah. Yeah. So that's where I was naive but lucky. You know, I I was I just found my old business plan, and my business plan is eerily similar to what I actually did, except for. Um. It didn't. It didn't include any any of the numbers, uh-huh. but but the theme of the restaurant and you know what we wanted to be in the positioning and all that shit like that's the same. But but we didn't really have any money. We're but we're like it was me and a friend of mine who's a cook. We wanted to open something together. We had I don't know like fifty thousand dollars between us or something like that. And uh, yeah. the spaces that we were actually looking at before we found the one we were in was. Not very realistic, but I didn't know at the time, right? I just what do you what do you mean? Like they were too big or too no? Small it's just or? like we found a nice corner location, but it didn't have a kitchen. Mm-hmm. 
I could have pulled the trigger on something that I would halfway through the build out find out that, oh shit, 50% of a kitchen build out might be the ventilation, right? Yeah. When the yeah, price of, of the kitchen is the price of the kitchen is two hundred thousand, you gotta add at least fifty thousand just in plumbing and electricity on top of that. You know, stuff like that yeah. that you don't yeah. that you have to like it has taken me quite a few kitchens to really be able like I've built quite a few kitchens now and like now I kind of know, but I still don't really know. But then I had no clue, right? Yeah. And we were lucky because we found it look like I got approached by my initial partners at at Lysvarke, where I'm at now, uh, because of date, like it was an existing restaurant. Okay. Where the landlord approached my friend and asked him to put a concept in, and that's how the concept came about. And that was like I moved home in December, and in March I had the keys to the space, and in uh, wow June we were open. That's very lucky. Wow. Very. So you didn't lucky. have to build out a kitchen at all, or waited for any of that shit. You just no. It had the ventilation and some walk-ins and stuff like that, and and uh, we we built like a campsite type of kitchen underneath that hood. You know, we bought some really cheap equipment and we just knuckle through it mm-hmm. because yeah. I, you know, we didn't have money to do anything else. And I was also scared of putting in uh, all this equipment in a space and and like I didn't know. The restaurant is fairly big, and we did lunch, dinner, events, all this stuff in the same space. Wow. So, I didn't really need what I didn't really know exactly what that kitchen would have to look like to be efficient. And then the year after, I built a you know a Cadillac of a kitchen, and uh, luckily, and it's luck that kitchen that that layout was nice, and you know I haven't had to redo that since. So well, that's almost ten years now. Well, that's like eight years now. So wow, yeah. And what's what's in that kitchen? I think I I looked it up. It's like a yellow um, charcoal grill. Yeah, so like it, a, was a, it was it was it's a high end like Spanish high end kitchen uh, kitchen uh, designer who a lot of Norwegian restaurants have used, and uh, it's all like seamless benches and you know very custom stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But in Norway, electricity uh, is fairly cheap, and, and we don't really have the same infrastructure on gas as you have here. Uh-huh. So I have. And I also prefer induction vastly over, like I hate cooking on gas. I think it's uh, a really, it is a very clumsy cooking medium in my opinion. Okay. So uh, I have nine 5,000 kilowatt inductions, which is, is a lot. You know, that's, that's yeah. very, 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 very high powered inductions. And then uh, also like which are great for pan roasting and sauce work and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I also love cooking over live fire. So I built a, um, like just a kind of fire pit in the, like a reset, recessed in the, into the bench where yeah. we have a charcoal. So most of our meats and, uh, some of the seafood is cooked on that charcoal. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. It's really cool. Yeah. There's some, there's, there's something about that where I don't like, like at Blue Hill would do a lot. I don't think they do it anymore the same, to the same extent, but they did a lot of sous vide stuff with the meat. Mm-hmm. And uh, at per se, it was opposite. They did a lot of minute charcoal grilling and rotisserie and stuff. And there's something about the vibrancy of the, like you can't, to me, in my opinion, meat dies in a bag, you know, like it doesn't yeah. when you, uh, yeah the juice and the freshness and the acidity of the blood and all that stuff. Like it kind of, I don't know. I don't like it. You know, it also doesn't teach your kids how to cook. And yeah, uh, for sure. So anyone who starts online with me, like not even start, like no, nobody gets to work that grill without a timer. Right. 
and that's a uh, like everybody always feel like they know how to cook, but then you know, mid service, if you're doing individual steaks on a charcoal grill without a timer, it can be fairly. I will guarantee you that you'll not cook them consistently well, right? So yeah. So a timer, yeah. like the the guys who work online at Lisvaka, they really, really, really learn how to cook. You know, like they 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 become very, very, very strong uh, all around cooks from that setup. Yeah. The inductions and the the grill together with the grill. Huh, that's an interesting setup. I've never heard of so many induction burners. That's well, it's really, just really cool. I've been, yeah. it's basically the four. It's a four by four and a single. So the four by mm-hmm. four is like a flat top, right? So there's three stations on that line. There's two, basically two identical stations on like fish and meat. Okay. With each their four top uh, induction with the grill in between them. And then the Garmage station has a single, single induction in a salamander or a broiler. Okay. Mm. So it's not as excessive as it sounds. It's just like basically two flat tops, right? Yeah. 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 Did the idea of uh, forging come from, did that start from the beginning or is that something you developed as? No, that um, no, that was in the beginning because when we opened the restaurant, we knew like we were very ambitious, and uh, I had a lot of my like a lot a lot of my friends that I work with in the U.S. You know, every time they were between jobs, they would travel, uh-huh. and um, so I had a lot of people swing by the restaurant and spend time with us, and um, and also Bergen being in Norway, far away from the all you know the the markets in paris and these places is it's hard to have that you can't find product at the same quality as easily as you can you know in, in new york or paris or these places so also yeah. i wasn't like i wanted to have a unique take on like i wanted i wanted to cook with local ingredients and my yeah. point is there's not that much local ingredient available if you go through traditional channels so and my hometown is like literally on the north uh, North Sea with a bunch of islands and, and stuff around there. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we just started going out out to the out to the uh, to the islands with marine biologists and divers and stuff like that, and and uh, having them wow. educate us on what kind of sea seaweed and stuff like that we could eat, and you know the, all the different you know. There's back then ten years ago, the variety of, of seafood that you would could buy from the distributors were was of course less than what it is now because it there just wasn't like we have a local a, a variety of a quahog you know the big clams okay so yeah. when you go di- when you go diving you can see the the bottom of the ocean is littered with these giant clams but nobody was eating them at the time right really yeah so like we would just have the diver bring us all this stuff and we'd go diving with them and bring it back up and try out all this different thing all these different things and and then uh, a friend of mine came from noma and uh, uh-huh. we were joking about how they were for- forging everything, and that was so old school because what we did was foraging, and it was yeah. funny, and you know, it kind of turned into <laughs> a thing. But uh, yeah, again, it was you know, it was I would say it was like fifty percent just marketing because I know that every every single journalist would ask, would want you know those pictures, yeah. and, yeah, and uh, sure. And it did define the food that we made for a very long time. Not so much anymore because I. You know, not all of this forged stuff tastes nice, you know, like, mm-hmm. and very often it takes away, like the restaurant focuses too much on the, the genius of the chef and too little on the experience of the diner. And, you know, you get these long spiels about fermented pine needles and 
you can't really taste it in the food or it doesn't taste that yeah. nice or it's, you know, it's interesting or you have, because you want to highlight it, you need, you can only do it in a small amount. So you end up having 20, 20 courses and stuff like that. So, so, yeah. uh, lately the last couple of years I've toned it down and we still, we still use a lot of this stuff, but I don't, I don't necessarily talk about it as much. And, you know, it's not as important. It's not as, as important to our, uh, culture and in the restaurants and, I'm a marketing, I guess. Do you find that diners like, uh, like sort of look for that kind of stuff or, or do you less, think they're less than they did? Really? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think diners, um, I don't know. I feel like, like I have definitely taken a, a very, um, a conscious move away from like having the kitchen and the chef being the lead to trying to have, um, to be more empathetic of what the diner needs or why the, why the diner is in the restaurant. And then like, I definitely know that my, my, my local clientele, the, the more often you interrupt them with the story about this snail that the, the, the kitchen staff went out this morning and we forged these snails and this is on your dish and blah, blah, blah. Like they don't give a shit, you know? <laughs> and then some of, the, some of the visiting guests, they will find that very exciting because it's all part of their whole Nordic adventure. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but my restaurant is in a town of uh, just below three hundred thousand people, so I get a lot of repeat business, and and uh, yeah, and my repeat business they have their preferences, right? And they're and if their preference is not natural wine, and you know, for sure, uh, getting macerated Slovenian, you know, indigenous varieties of whatever, yeah, but they want their oaky shard from Burgundy, then. Like that's my business. My business is to give them what they want in, in, within the framework of, you know, the, the ethos of my restaurant. But still, I feel like there was, there's been too much of a emphasis on the storytelling and oh yeah, the sure. restaurants, the, you know, the restaurant, why this specific restaurant is so unique and the educational part and all that stuff, you know, like I very, yeah. very, very quickly, oh, I've always been at odds with a lot of the, uh, the, the farm to table and the, the local some of these organizations and initiatives for local farmers because they've been back home because like I've gone to the union square green market. So I know what a nice green market looks like. Right. And what the, like if, if you want, if you go there in tomato season, you'll find the best tomato grower in the Hudson mm-hmm. and, and the tomatoes will be amazing. Right. Back home is there's so many initiatives around just straight local small scale producers that, where they expect that the fact that it's small scale adds value to it. And it's my job as as a restaurant to convey that value to the guests that upcharge for it. And I say, that's not right. Like this apple juice just tastes like apples, not like a normal apple juice. I can't charge a premium just because it's grown down the street. Yeah. You know, unless it's an amazing, like something amazing, it's not. So I very quickly went, I, I, when I started my restaurant, I said, we don't do storytelling, you know, like I don't educate my guests with anything. If they have any, if they have questions, I'll tell them, but like, yeah. I'm not going to write these long narratives on my menu about where everything is from because <laughs> every scallop from somewhere, you know? I like that. So, yeah. you know, I don't know. That's That's been a little bit difficult. So, so anyway, my point is I have uh, tried to change our approach to hospitality from very chef-driven, which it inherently is, of course, since it's my restaurant. But yeah, like, I've, in all my restaurants, I keep telling all the – telling the the managers that 
like basically the kitchen is the 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 assistance of the waiters and the head chef is the assistant of the general manager or the restaurant manager right and it's, it's it, okay. it is it, it is it is of of course um, a bit strong but the point my point is more that for years well for me ever since cooking it's been the other way around where the chef is the boss in the restaurant and the cooks, you don't, you don't mess with the cooks and the servers are always timid because they're often part-time workers and all that stuff. Like I've tried to change the, um, our, our approach to, to the way we run a restaurant, uh, to, uh, towards having the front of house managers dictate the pace of service and their priorities and, and make sure that everybody understands that, the, the the front of house are in direct contact with every guest and if they come with the need of anything it is 100 mm-hmm. percent at the interest of the restaurant while a cook very often has a need that's at the interest of that cook right yeah or, that's true that's very true yeah. so and that cook being a lot more aggressive than the part-time waiter will put that <laughs> waiter in his place and it's like that is such yes. a dumb dynamic you know so it has made my my restaurants a lot more uh, like softer. There's a lot less uh, aggression and a lot less people feel more com- like the the part time waiters and those guys. They feel a lot more comfortable uh, asking questions and and coming with the requests for the kitchen and these type of things. And it's but it's uh, it it requires a fairly uh, a very strong cultural change. That's true. Yeah. That's that's kind of the way that things used to be run. I mean, before this whole chef, uh, right. uh, chefdom, it was like it was like we're in the service of the customer, right? And everything is in support of getting the customer what they what they yeah. like. Right? But there's just been so much. There's been so much innovation led by cooks, you know. And mm-hmm. so obviously, if all that innovation comes from the kitchen side, you know, all the molecular gastronomy, all the different, all these different things, on the restaurant itself stays more or less the same. Of course, the attention shifts towards the kitchen and not towards the front of us, right? Yeah. But yeah. a place like EMP that is focused a lot on where a lot of the innovation happened in the front of house, then of course the front of house becomes very important, you know? But yeah. But still, it's just like people need to, like we need to, at the end of the day with the storytelling and all that stuff, we need to under, we need to read our guests and we need to have empathy towards our guests and give them what they need, like what all the especially in a very small town where you can't curate your your clientele the way you can a a 18 seat counter on Manhattan right so, yeah that's very like true we, yeah. need, we need to be a for our guests and give them what they need for that specific yeah. you know dinner if, yeah like you said if you're um if you have uh, returning customers you got to just make sure they're happy or the or the restaurant's gonna <laughs> restaurant's gonna go under especially if you want to keep a restaurant open for as long as you have you know so yeah, and then you also need to be able to look yourself in the mirror at night. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. The more money yeah. I make, the better I look in the mirror. So uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, what's uh, what's what's on the horizon for you? Are you still just like working I don't know. That's that a million dollar question right there. What is on the horizon? I would say there's a nuclear winter on the horizon back home. <laughs> uh, we have uh, we've had this. Uh, We've been fairly unlucky. I mean, not as unlucky as Ukraine, but the the situation in Ukraine has, uh, has very severely affected energy prices, which 
uh, has affected uh, people's uh, spending ability. We have uh, in, in a crazy inflation. Food uh, food alone is up 13% in my, back home in Norway. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, interest rates are up and it's just a hard financial times back home. This affected my restaurants a lot. So yeah. back home, I'm, I've also expanded. When, when COVID hit, I decided to go uh, to lean into it and be very, very aggressive. So I opened a bunch of new businesses and new restaurants during COVID. And why, why was that? Why, why did you, why we, why well, Norway that? is a very coddled, uh, uh, society. You know, we have okay. one of the richest countries in the world, everything, you know, healthcare, education, everything is free. If you end up, uh, unemployed, You'll never want, like, you can go unemployed because you're lazy. Was, they say that in the U.S. as well, right? But here, basically, yeah. you'll be poor. In Norway, you won't That's, be poor the same way, right? Yeah. And, um, so there was a lot of assistance to open the businesses? Uh, not, re- not really, but but the point is, I mean, so, sadly, well, not sadly, like, despite all that, the restaurant industry is very, very comparable to here. But okay. my point is, it's just our mentality. When something like that happens, we expect the government to take care of us. We get whiny. And uh, we also know that everything will be all right. So I figured, well, that's an opportunity, right? Because if it's one of yeah. the, my key takeaways from working in the U.S. Is, is here just everything is more real, more hardcore. So I figured when this happens in March 2020, when this happened, I, I told my managers, I told her, told them, we're going to look for uh, for uh, opportunity, and we're going to take this as a a boot camp. Like when we, if we have to close, uh, shut the door of the restaurant, we're not going to take a break. We're going to take that as an, an opportunity to to double down. So, wow. uh, like I made my businesses a lot leaner. I met, I started a management company that 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 manages all my restaurants and then i i started uh i started one new restaurant and i uh, uh i kind of took over a, a second i started a roofing company that does like urban gardening on on uh, oh, okay commercial cool. buildings uh, uh-huh. wow you got real uh, aggressive sorry? <laughs> i said you got real aggressive yeah and then <laughs> I, I'm here in the u.s right so like wow. i so i expanded a lot with zero money and, wow. and at the same time, took a huge hit in my businesses. So, uh-huh. liquidity-wise, and you know, just financially, it's been really, really tough. So, I just need to get through this winter, and then hopefully, after that, I'll come out of it with a lot of traction. Yeah. So basically, I'm trying to be a little bit conservative. But that said, like, I don't know, man. I mean, I always want to open more restaurants. You know. Yeah. And I also miss cooking. It's taken away a lot from my cooking, though, like, because I'm, man- I'm doing all this time. I'm managing so much. But we got the first Michelin star at, at Lisbaki this uh, summer. And like, yeah, that is Congrats. Thank you. I mean, that's given us uh, – I mean, that has enabled us to do what we've always wanted to do there a lot more, right? So mm-hmm. I, I'm definitely going to spend more time just refining that restaurant, you know, because it's just so much fun, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I was yeah. going to ask, like, uh, running all these restaurants, is it, it It must take away from, well, what do you enjoy more? Do you enjoy being in the kitchen and, like, getting hands-on with that kind of stuff? Or do you 
like running all these restaurants and the uh, well, diversity. I, I kind of love everything about it, you know? Like I yeah. love, I, I, I bitch and moan about the HR part of it and these type of things. But, <laughs> but the truth is like, if I really hated it, I just wouldn't touch it, you know? But I still sit down yeah. with the young cook and I still take it personal. I, you know, like I have a lot of employees now, but I still, like one of, I think as a restaurateur, if you don't have empathy, you'll never be a good restaurateur, right? Because if it's yeah. to your employees, or to the, if, you, if you don't have it to your guests, like how you can't have it to your guests and then not have it to your, your employees, you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. So, like, I enjoy that part. I really love the, uh, like, I, it sounds weird, but I love, I love P&Ls, you know what I mean? Like, I love looking at a P&L and trying to understand the business and trying to figure out ways of improving the business through the P&Ls, you know? Okay. Um, yeah. And I would say the, the, uh, the benefit of having all these kitchens and cooks is that like I'm inherently lazy. So if I have an idea, <laughs> yeah. I can tell that cook, like, do you mind trying out? I have this idea. Can do you mind making, can you just, if you just make me a Burbank, I'll take it from there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Talking <laughs> yeah. a little bit and I don't know. Yeah. No, but I don't know. I, I kind of love it all. I think is, but I do dream of just like being online a little bit. Yeah. But it's also not realistic. I kind of played myself out of that, out of that department. It's unrealistic. Yeah. All, all people like me in my position always say that same stuff. You know, I wish I did a dream of the days. I only had one restaurant. I did this, but the, the truth is like when I only had one restaurant, I had no freedom. You know, I couldn't do, I couldn't go get away from it. If I, you know, if I went away, the second I stepped away from it, you know, you're, you're so feel so guilty for not being there with the guys. And now, now I have a lot more freedom, yeah. you know, that I can enjoy. Yeah. Like I came into restaurants and cooking because I love restaurants and I love cooking, you know, mm-hmm. now that I have more restaurants, I, I hopefully I get to enjoy the, you know, all of it more. Well, that's, that's an interesting take. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get that. Well, damn, man. Um, I don't know what else to say. I, I appreciate you coming on, man. I really do. Congrats again on the, uh, on the Michelin. Well, how, that, how, how has that changed? Has that changed you guys at all? Just yeah, out of maybe, curiosity. Yeah, I raised the prices. <laughs> <laughs> Of course. No, but I mean, yeah, yeah. I did that, but I mean, it, it, it changes people's uh, perception of the meal. You know, like people come in with higher expectations, but it's also a part, like partly it's like a bit of like emperor's new clothes. Like because you're a Michelin yeah. restaurant, everything tastes better to them. And I see a lot oh. more like people are proud. Like it's part of an experience. Like, uh, it's people, it's on people's bucket list, right? Eating at that type of restaurant. So, yeah, that's true. People are yeah. a lot more grateful. Sure. They also mm-hmm. get aggressive if you don't deliver. Oh shit! Yeah. Right? So it's a double-edged sword, but I mean, it's definitely def- like I, I am very, very, very grateful, grateful for yeah. it. And it's also for a restaurant like ours is that we, we've been open for nine years when we got that star. You know how do you yeah. how do you keep momentum? Uh, after nine years in a town of 300,000 people, you know, like it, it was, that is wild. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was definitely, uh, it definitely came in a good time, like after the pandemic and stuff, you know? So, yeah. But more than anything, it just enables me to take, like it gives me the opportunity to do what I do at a higher level now. Like I, there's no, I can't say, well, if I only did this, like we have a Michelin star, you know, like, 
it's not two or three, but it's still, I don't feel like there's something I could, I can't do now that I could only do if I had two stars or three stars. You know what I mean? Like now, yeah. it's, now I just need to prove that I deserve it. Yeah. So is, is your focus now on like keeping it or are you guys trying to go for a second or are you just like, or are you just try to put it out of your mind? No, my, I don't think it's like your focus getting a second because I don't really know what that would be, but I would say I would definitely, I would say we got that started despite of our, um, our situation, you know, coming out of the pandemic and I mean, I don't have any investors in the restaurant. Like, I don't have any money. I don't have any investors. Uh, so now like I've spent a lot of money on plates and cutleries and nicer glasses and all that stuff that you really want and that I've always wanted for the restaurant, but I hadn't, like I hadn't been able to afford. Mm -hmm. So now I'm trying to put these things in place, right? Have more staff and, you know, just kind of like get the restaurant to where I I feel like it deserves to be. And yeah, that of course is parent. That is the same as maintaining or improving the restaurant. I'm not sure yeah. exactly if I w- wanted to take it to a high, you know, to the second star or whatever, then it will probably require a lot more investment. And, but maybe not, maybe it just, maybe it just means now that we have a more sustainable framework to it, maybe it just means like just cooking what we do better and more predictable. And maybe, you know, if you're lucky, then that's two stars, but it's not really that big of a deal. Like I've never done, like I've, I've when we opened the restaurant, I said, we're not going to do any dumb stuff just to get a star. Like we're going to do what's yeah. natural for the restaurant and uh-huh. what's, what's, uh, what, what's uh, healthy for the economy of this specific restaurant. And, and if that's uh, like, if that is serving burgers in the bar and then the fine dining and all the cart, like a tasting and all the cart, then, then that's what we're going to do. Right. Yeah. And that wasn't really that, uh, well, the Michelin back home in Norway, or in Scandinavia, it's, it's usually a, a certain type of restaurant that has a longer tasting menu and stuff that, that will get a Michelin star. Not saying that it's mm-hmm. the only ones that could get it, but it's often what does get it, right? Yeah. Coming out of the pandemic, it made sense for us to just keep one long tasting menu. Yeah. So we did that. And then, you know, that coincided with some inspectors' visits and, you know, boom, that's when we got it, you know? Mm-hmm. So. so you just let it happen naturally. Yeah. That's probably yeah. a good way to go about it instead like, of chasing we, it. Well, yeah. we did. I, we, I did articulate it. I said, well, now it makes sense for us to try to go get it, you know, but we didn't do okay. I didn't go fundraise for it. You know what I mean? Like I didn't, yeah. I didn't do anything stupid for it. I just said, I just concentrated yeah. more on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I think that's a good place to leave it, man. Um, right. I really appreciate right. you uh, coming on and talking and stuff. And like I said, I'll, I'll let you know when it comes out. And Yeah. Uh, thanks for having yeah. me. Good luck with your, yeah. uh, with your podcast. Thanks, man. Yeah, I don't have to make a trip down to uh, Houston and check out check out yep. your restaurant. Let so, me know. let me know, man. All right, all right, man. All right. Take have a good care. One.